Father, we ask now that as we begin looking at the life and work of those who've gone before us, we ask that you would guide our understanding and our thoughts. Give us uh, clarity of understanding, but give us charity because we make mistakes too. Pray that you would help us to gain lessons that will be useful and enable us to be a blessing to someone else. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this one is called Kellogg versus the Ministry. And the subtitle there is A Century of Collateral Damage. This is not a pretty story. Why is this even important? Well, you know, I don't think I read this statement until the last year I was a classroom teacher. <laughs> I wish I'd read it long before. But after 19 years of teaching in the classroom, I finally got around to reading this one. It says this, As religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. Obligation. That's an obligation, you know? That's something that if you don't do, you're in trouble. <laughs> okay. Language comes and goes. The word of the Lord lasts forever, but human languages change. Um, and um, we're going to be looking at the term medical missionary. The very first time Ellen White used that in a Review and Herald, Herald article wasn't until 1893. Might have expected it earlier than that, but it wasn't until 1893. First time it shows up in the testimonies wasn't until Volume 6, published in 1901. That doesn't mean that the idea wasn't around, though. It's just that she didn't call it medical missionary work. Before that time, the word was bene, okay? Anybody speak Spanish? Okay. Bene is related to what? Bueno? I don't know what over else, but anyhow. It's, a, it's a, a Latin word root. It means well or good. And we get words like benefit and beneficent. And we'll be looking at benevolent. Okay, is the key word we'll be looking at. Before it was called medical missionary work, it was called the benevolent work. This is a term used by Seventh-day Adventists from the late 1860s on to describe efforts to help people, especially the poor, disadvantaged, sick, um, and to do so in practical, tangible ways. A synonym, another term that they used for this, was Christian help work. But in Ellen White's writing, at least, an even more common way to refer to the idea was just to make a reference to Isaiah 58. Share your bread with the hungry, bring the poor to your house, close the naked. Those verses, okay? Well, um, <clears throat> the uh, Seventh-day Adventist Benevolent Association was formed in 1868 to foster this sort of work. This was largely in reaction to the failure of the church to provide for a woman by the name of Hannah Moore. If you've ever read Volume 2 of the Testimonies, you've read her story. Hannah Moore was a Baptist missionary to Africa came back to the United States, ran into Stephen Haskell. He gave her some literature. She read it when she got back to Africa, accepted the Sabbath, thought her Baptist missionaries would just be overjoyed to learn this great new truth. They weren't, in fact. They fired her and did not pay for her return to the United States. So she kind of hitchhiked her way back home, which is a little more complicated when you have an ocean in between, uh, and um, eventually made her way to Battle Creek. Unfortunately for her, she got to Battle Creek when James and Ellen White were not in town, and that made a big difference. 
Hannah Moore was in her 50s, I think, by that time. She wasn't young. She had some health problems from overwork, diseases that she'd contracted in Liberia. Um, she had some challenges, but she wanted to be with God's people and she wanted to help, but she needed a job. She needed a room to stay in. And the problem was that she hadn't really spent much of her money on clothes since the couple of times back when she'd been in the United States. And all her clothes were about 15 years out of date. And somehow that prejudiced a lot of people against her. And so she never found a work, or never found a, a job. She never found a house, never found a room. And eventually, as her money was all being used up, she wrote to former co-workers who are now living in northern Michigan, still Baptists, and said, could I come and work for you? And they said, yes, by all means. So she went up to northern Michigan and died there that winter from tuberculosis. And we lost the opportunity to have our first foreign missionary. This was, this was 1868. We didn't send out Jan Andrews until 1874. We could have had somebody who actually had, by that time, like 20 years of foreign missionary experience coming, joining our work. And we didn't. It was a sad situation. Ellen White would write about it. She said, in this testimony, I speak freely of the case of Sister Hannah Moore, not from a willingness to grieve the Battle Creek Church, but from a sense of duty. I love that church, notwithstanding their faults. I know of no church that in acts of benevolence and general duty do so well. I present the frightful facts in this case to arouse our people everywhere to a sense of their duty. Not one in 20 of those who have a good standing with Seventh-day Adventists is living out the self-sacrificing principles of the Word of God. She would later write that in the case of Sister Hannah Moore, I was shown that the neglect of her was the neglect of Jesus in her person. Had the Son of God come in the humble, unpretending manner in which he journeyed from place to place when he was upon earth, he would have met with no better reception. And so, as a response to that, the benevolent work was begun. By 1887, there were 37 Adventist city missions in operation. In 1888, only 22 were reported. What does that mean? Does that mean that 15 significant operations went out of existence. No, what it means is that this was a rather small informal work and that the reporting was kind of sketchy. <laughs> and the idea that, you know, that 15 big operations folded that year, no, that didn't happen. It's just that Adventists were kind of stumbling their way into this whole idea of benevolent humanitarian work. It was, um, it wasn't something that we embraced wholeheartedly put that way. And then along came Dr. Kellogg. For both good and bad, Seventh-day Adventist benevolent work would never be the same. Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was clearly the most colorful character in Adventist history. I wish I'd met the guy. Um, fascinating, fascinating guy. He was intelligent. Frankly, he could run circles around most any other Adventist on, on matters of general intelligence and obviously medical work. He was a little bit insecure all his life. He was short. He was only 5'4". Um, and it's kind of like he always wanted to be 6'1". <laughs> you know? Um, in fact, in his office, he had a, a wall in the office that, that was a little 
cubby hole cut into the wall, and there was a, a, a wooden bench built right into this cubby hole, and mounted permanently flush with the back wall was a, was a yardstick. And when you walked into his office, he had very good eyesight. He could size you up at 20 feet away, and he'd know whether he should do this or not. And if he thought he would win, he'd say, come over here and sit down. And you'd go over and you'd sit down on this bench, and he'd mark how tall you were from the waist up. And then he'd sit down, and he'd be taller than you were from the waist up. He just had short legs. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, all his life there was maybe this little fixation on this stature thing, okay? He was a little insecure, okay? He was very independent. When he was 14, his father gave him, for a birthday present, he gave him a watch, a pocket watch. Pocket watch in those days was kind of a status symbol for a young man. It was like, I don't know, an iPod or something. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure what it would compare to, but very nice little pocket watch, all wrapped up in a, in a box. Gave it to him. John took it, opened the box, pulled the watch out, opened it up, admired it, looked it all over, closed it, put it back in the botch, box, handed it back to his father and says, it's beautiful, father, but all by my own. That's an unusual level of independence. John did not like to be tied or beholden to anyone. He was proud. Probably his pride may have contributed to his greatest single mistake. John, at one point was attracted to a young lady who worked at the Review and Herald. She was pretty, intelligent, a good musician, even becoming something of an author. Um, but as it turned out, she ended up marrying another young man by the name of William Clarence White. Willie White. The relationship between John and Willie was never quite the same after that. And John waited a couple of years, and it's like, you know, John Harvey Kellogg did not come in second to anyone. And he waited until he found a young lady who was one step better. This is her, not when she was a young lady, but uh, nonetheless, her name was Ella Eaton. She was a good cook. She was attractive. She was an accomplished musician. She was an established author. And she had something that was very rare in those days. She had a bachelor's degree. Very rare for a woman in the 1870s. She later went on and got her master's degree. But interestingly enough, she got her master's degree from a place called Alfred University, which is in fact a Seventh-day Baptist college. And she was in fact a Seventh-day Baptist all her life. She never did become a Seventh-day Adventist. It was her major professor, a guy by the name of Abram Lewis, who introduced Dr. Kellogg to pantheism. Kellogg was generous. He and his wife raised 42 adopted or foster children. He put at least 50 students through medical school that we know of. He was decisive. When the Battle Creek Sanitarium burned down, first thing John heard about it was coming back home. He was on the train. He got to Chicago walking through the Chicago train station, whatever, he heard the newsboys, you know, extra, extra, read all about it, Battle Creek Sanitarium burns to the ground. He bought a paper, looked at it a little bit. When he got on the train, 15 minutes later, he called the uh, steward, and he says, uh, I'll be needing a large lap board, three pencils, a ruler, and uh, several large sheets of paper. Well, John Harvey Kellogg was like the 
triple platinum frequent flyer guy in the Kella, uh, in the uh, the railroad business at the time. So what he asked for, he got. And so they delayed the train until they could get all that, and they got it to Dr. Kellogg. By the time he got back to Battle Creek, an hour and 15 minutes later, he had plans for a new sanitarium drawn. That's decisiveness. Dr. Kellogg tended to be a little bit controlling. We'll skip some of those details and move on. But Dr. John Harvey Kellogg was also converted. And we have that on very good authority. After the meeting in Minneapolis, Dr. Kellogg was a converted man, and we all knew it. We could see the converting power of God working in his heart and life. Now, Ellen White was writing that 15 years later, 1903, at the General Conference. Uh, I can't say everything. Let's skip over those details, but anyhow, okay. The meeting at Minneapolis, she's referring to, of course, was the 1888 General Conference session. Jones, Wagner, you know, Righteousness by Faith, all that, if you're familiar with that part of the history, okay. Um, this was where Kellogg became a truly converted man. It's not that he'd been a bad guy. I mean, he'd been a church member in a good and regular standing. He was the medical director of the sanitarium. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't the town drunk by any stretch. But he was converted in 1888, and everybody could see it. So the question is, what could they see? What was different in Dr. Kellogg's life after 1888 that he was converted? Well, here's an idea. This might help you a little bit. Um, now White writes this about the whole righteousness by faith issue. While the believer is justified because of the merit of Christ, he is not free to work on righteousness. Faith works by love and purifies the soul. Faith buds and blossoms and bears a harvest of precious fruit. Where faith is, good works appear. The sick are visited. The poor are cared for. The fatherless and the widows are not neglected. The naked are clothed the destitute are fed. That's a list that I think deserves some serious consideration. That's what faith does. And sometimes I'm not sure that I have as much faith as I need. That's what faith does. That's what conversion does. And that's what Dr. Kellogg did after 1888. Something sparked within him an interest in his fellow men. By 1890, uh, August of 1890, Dr. Kellogg had sought out Ellen White's uh, counsel, and she wrote this, Dear brethren, while in Petoskey, I had some conversation with your physician-in-chief in regard to establishing a home for orphan children at Battle Creek. I said that this was just what was needed among us as a people, and that in enterprises of this kind, we were far behind other denominations. So Dr. Kellogg was converted, and he said, we've got a lot of orphans, and nobody's taking care of them. The fact is, there were at least 200 Adventist orphans at that point, and there was not a thing being done for them, possibly other than some local churches were, were caring for them. But there were Adventist orphans at that point who were being cared for by the state, who were in poor homes, who had been adopted out to Catholic families. All of those things had happened in, in recent years. And Kellogg says, this is a shame. This should not be. So he asked, what about, uh, what about establishing an orphanage? Ellen White said, what a great idea. Go for it. Um, okay. Nope, that's what I want. There we go. So he got started. Didn't have a lot of money. They actually made a denomination-wide appeal in, at the General Conference of 1891. 
And a year later, they didn't have enough money to even begin construction of the orphanage. The Adventist church had not responded enthusiastically to this idea of an orphan home. In 1892, Mrs. Carolyn Haskell came as a guest to the sanitarium. Impressed by what she had seen, she asked Kellogg if there were any special needs towards which she might donate. Her interest eventually led to a $30,000 gift given as a memorial to her late husband, Frederick Haskell. Now, it should be noted that the Haskells were Presbyterians. They were not Adventists. This is no relation to Stephen Haskell, the well-known Adventist pioneer minister. Soon, approximately 100 children were being cared for by the orphanage, courtesy of the Haskells. And if you ever have any confusion as to what uh, inflation does to your money, I suggest that you take $30,000 and build one of these. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> uh, this was the Haskell Home for Orphan Children. And it's kind of a unique thing. It was interesting. It's actually not one big operation. It wasn't run as an institution. It was carved up into separate areas inside. And they actually operated as about six to seven to eight different times families. Uh, they did have a, a, at least a matron and ideally a, a mother-father figure and then, oh, you know, 12 to 15 kids in each family functioning as a family. That's a pretty advanced concept for its time, actually. Well, in 1889, Dr. Kellogg got a first-hand look at the work of city missions. He later said, I never had much faith in God until I went down to the Jerry McCauley mission in New York City and saw how the Lord could save drunkards. That is impressive. In the spring of 1893, the Chicago Branch Sanitarium and the Chicago Medical Mission were opened. In 1896, a large church was purchased and fitted up to become the working man's home. What do you think the working man's home was? What would we call it today? It was a homeless shelter. Adventists don't run homeless shelters. We used to. The services at the working man's home included basic medical care, English language classes, free baths, self-service laundry, uh, limited employment opportunities, penny dinners, and 10-cent lodging. For the 15 years of the mission's operation, Dr. Kellogg tried to spend every other Sunday in Chicago. He actually enjoyed himself down there. It was fun. He liked it. We're going to follow a train of Ellen White comments now that are chronologically arranged. It's important you catch the chronology of this to understand what's going on here. In 1895, she wrote, I am in full sympathy with the work that is being done in Chicago. I believe in helping along every line which is possible to help following the steps of Christ. Those who take hold of this Christian help work who will consecrate themselves to God will find that he will be present, a present help to them in every hour of need. 1897, she wrote, The very work Dr. Kellogg has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches are bound to do under covenant relation to God. They are to love God supremely and their neighbor as themselves. What does that mean, under covenant relation to God? They are bound under covenant relation. What does that mean? It means that if you don't do it, you break the covenant and you are no longer related to God. That's what it means. The very work Dr. Kellogg has been, manage, has been managing is the kind of work the whole of our churches. This is very sweeping stuff here. 
This work is the work the churches have left undone, and they cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work in the cities, in highways, and in hedges. Now, here's, the, here's something for you. Some people thrive on the idea of a challenge. They want a challenge in life, okay? I like challenges, but I'm selective about the challenges that I like. I like the challenges that I think I can succeed at. If you're not so fussy, here's a challenge for you. Find something God says cannot be done and spend your whole life trying to do it. <laughs> You'll have a challenge, and you will never succeed. Notice what it says. The churches cannot prosper until they have taken hold of this work. Then, after they take hold of this work, angels of God will cooperate with human instrumentalities and a religious system will be inaugurated to relieve the necessities of suffering human beings who are in physical, mental, and moral need. That is a sweeping statement. When the churches take hold of this work, this very kind of work Kellogg was doing, that's what she said, then the angels of God will cooperate and a religious system Something organized, big, will be inaugurated to relieve human suffering. My brethren in America, in the place of questioning and criticizing Dr. Kellogg because he is doing the class of work he is, when you do your God-given service, you will be heart and soul engaged in doing the same kind of work which will be of far more account in the sight of God than for so many to flock into Battle Creek where they become religious dwarfs because they do not do the work God has appointed them. Ouch. <laughs> That's a little pointed. And notice the publication there. That was, that was a, a public publication, okay? That wasn't, that was, that's not some private testimony someplace, some personal letter to some guy that she never hoped to see the light of day. That was in a, something we handed out on the streets. 1898, we're creeping along in our time, timeline here. So, The question has been asked, did you not give Dr. Kellogg encouragement after he had entered into this work? I answer, I did. For I had been instructed that a work of this character should be done by all our churches, that a deep interest should be taken in this very line of work, that according to the light which the Lord had been pleased to give me, this line of work should have been taken hold of with resolution by our ministers, not to create a large center in one place, but to establish the work in many places. Now here's where it turns a corner. By 1897, I'd say, she's writing in 98, but by 1897, Dr. Kellogg had been criticized, attacked, and made war upon, and that's Ellen White's expression, by the ministers for so long, he just got fed up with them. And I'm putting words in his mouth here, but it's like there was a change in his thinking. And he said, why should I work with these idiots? I will do more Christian work in my lines than they will ever hope to do altogether. And he set about making the Chicago mission a great monument to himself. That's wrong. Is not this great Babylon which I have built? Pride got the best of Dr. Kellogg, starting at about that point. And so Ellen White is writing here, says, all of this is good. Yeah, I supported Dr. Kellogg, but not to create a large center in one place, establish the work in many places. Okay? Remember that. Large, monolithic institutions are not God's plan. 
The word God pointed out for those in Battle Creek was for them to leave Battle Creek and work in places where there was nothing to represent the truth. Thus, plants would have been made in many places. Okay? She's saying, take all the, you, got, you got all these resources clumped in Battle Creek. Take some of that and get out of town. You know, get out of Dodge, brother. <laughs> you know, get out of town. Go find some place where there's not an Adventist for 50 miles around. Do something there because there's people there and they need it too. God has not forsaken his people, but his people have forsaken him. Those in Battle Creek should have worked for the ones who needed their help. Dr. Kellogg took up the work they did not do. The spirit of criticism shown to his work from the first has been very unjust and has made his work hard. The lack of sympathy his brethren have shown him has prepared the way for the work he has been doing in criticizing them. The Lord has no justification for any such work. My uh, older brother used to lecture me all the time. <laughs> he would say, multiple transgressions do not generate righteousness. <laughs> Which is to say, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, Ellen White was not going to support Kellogg in his attacks on the ministry. And she was not going to defend the ministers on their, in their attacks on him. Both sides were wrong. But along with two wrongs don't make a right, there's another old saying. It says, history is written by the victor. Always remember that. You will not find very many books praising the political genius of Adolf Hitler. That's because his side lost. Trust me. If the Germans had won, you could find those books. History is always written by the victor. And in this battle between Kellogg and the ministry, the ministry won. Oops. Let's go on. Had the church done in different localities the work given them by God, had they followed the example left them by Christ, there would now be centers all through America. Plants would be established in many places. There would not be a great showing in Chicago alone. The work would be multiplied in many places with the full cooperation of the institutions established in Battle Creek. The past should be subject for keen regret. The Lord would now have the medical missionary work recognized as the helping hand of God. Notice that sentence. The Lord wants you to finally get around to recognizing medical missionary work as the helping hand. It had not been recognized. It had been opposed and fought, made war upon by some, not all, primarily within the ministry. But this work has been carried too heavily in one place when plants should have been made in many places. So Kellogg was wrong. The ministers were wrong. Everybody's wrong. Oh, let's just have a happy day. We can all be wrong together. <laughs> the Lord has given Dr. Kellogg his work. It is a fact that our ministers are very slow to become health reformers notwithstanding all the light which the Lord has given upon this subject, this has caused Dr. Kellogg to lose confidence in them. Their tardy work in health reform has created in him a spirit of criticism, and he has borne down on them in an unsparing manner, which the Lord does not sanction. He has belittled the gospel ministry, and in his regard and ideas has placed the medical missionary work above the ministry. I have seen that in the censuring of ministers, remarks have been made which have not been to the honor and glory of God. Well, it's not hard to believe, I guess, is it? 
Um, people are people, you know? So don't be surprised when you actually read some history and you find people that are acting like people instead of acting like always geniuses and saints. You know? I really get tired of those rosy-tinted history books. Oh, please, give me a break. <laughs> That's not the way it was. Going on, still following our train of, uh, of statements, still 1898. Those who refused the warnings of God followed a course of action which brought its sure result. These influences have sometimes made the work of Dr. Kellogg doubly as hard as it should have been. They have led him to stand apart to some degree from the ministry. I desire to present matters as they are presented to me. Such a spirit of criticism and fault-finding has done the work Satan designed should be done. Dr. Kellogg has been led to take the course he deemed it his duty to take. He is not connected with those who were not in sympathy with the work he knew to be of God. Now that's a very, very tough spot to be in. When you're doing something that you know is God's work, but your brethren and sisters continually attack you for it. It's kind of hard to maintain that brotherly love that we might wish could be there. Kellogg failed. I can't excuse him. He failed. Well, going on. Our people have not all appreciated as they should the man through whom God has worked and with whom he has cooperated upon the subject of health reform. They have not reasoned from cause to effect to understand how great was the blessing of the sanitarium at Battle Creek under the management of Dr. Kellogg and his faithful associates. Through this work, the truths of the third angel's message have entered where it would otherwise have been very difficult for them to find entrance. But the perceptions of our people have been blinded. Okay. This is what had gone on. It was an unfortunate situation. <laughs> 1900. She's writing to the General Conference President. Seek to save Dr. Kellogg from himself. He is not heeding the counsel. He should heed. He is not satisfied because the Lord has signified that the missionary work does not consist alone in the slum work in Chicago. That work thought to be the great and important thing to be done is a very defective and expensive work. Now get a balance here. Um, Kellogg focused on his thing and his thing alone. And he forgot the whole rest of all the function of God's work. That's wrong. That was, in one sense, you could say that was his, his basic error, if you wish. Fueled by pride, he said, my work is important, nothing else matters. Um, and that was wrong. That was in, imbalanced. Okay. Well, let's see. Uh, let's go on. Ellen White would write, God forbid that the purposes Dr. Kellogg has in mind should be carried out. Our work is not to be a divided work. Four years after this, in 1904, she would write, Another statement that we'll spend time looking at a little later on today or tomorrow, I forget which, maybe helps us understand what she was concerned about there. She said, When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. Do any grammarians here? What part of, how would we describe the word worst? What kind of a word? 
It's a superlative, yeah. What's worse than the worst? Yeah. The worsterist, I guess. Yeah. Um, you can't get worse than worst. That's a serious statement. Ellen White is not given, was not given to exaggeration very much. So I think that's a, probably a serious issue there. Okay, well, going on. 1900. Writing to Dr. Kellogg, the Lord has sent you warnings, but you have not heeded them. Of the work you have taken up in Chicago, the Lord inquires, John, who has required this at your hands? You have establishments in America of your own ambitious creating. As you belong to the Seventh-day Adventist people, God has given you another work to do. You have not been called to do this work. The deceptive power of the enemy has led you to leave God's banner trailing in the dust. Well, Dr. Kellogg has committed himself as working undenominationally in a work which has taken the money from a people who are decidedly a denominational people. Isaiah 58, the great medical missionary chapter, Isaiah 58 does not sustain you in the kind of work you are doing and in expending God's revenue on that class of people found in the slums. There we obtained the, there we obtained the least results for labor put forth. Ellen White does not, in any of this, prohibit work for the very lowest classes of society. She does prohibit making that the all-encompassing factor, and that's what Kellogg was doing. There are councils of this nature, uh, the one the screen just before this, I guess, that we look at, that are written to Dr. Kellogg as an individual, saying, this is not your work. We have sometimes had a tendency as a denomination to take those statements and apply them to the denomination as a whole, and I think that is faulty. Dr. Kellogg was a highly educated individual with very important contacts with highly placed people. He had a special work to do, probably one that I will never be called upon because I don't happen to know people like Thomas Edison and what's his name, Firestone, and the Funk and Wagnall Dictionary guys, and I don't have crown heads of Europe coming to my institution, okay? Kellogg had all that, and so he had a special responsibility to use his influence to maximize what he could do. And Ellen White was saying, you're burying it down here in the slums, John, don't do that. And he says, I'm gonna show these ministers. I'm gonna show these ministers, yeah. Going on. The work has been hindered. The cause of God should have a different showing, far different. And who is to blame for this hindrance? You, Dr. Kellogg, give heed to men not of our faith. You delight to show what you have done and by a free use of money that was not yours to handle in a way that God has not appointed. God never set you to engage in gathering means and in doing the work that the Salvation Army are doing. Let them work in that line and you attend to your appointed work. And this is one of the classic statements. We forget often that this was addressed to Dr. Kellogg. Okay. I don't think that there's a, a, a call for the Adventist Church to do exactly the work of the Salvation Army either, but we've used that to, to rule out a lot of categories where other statements from Ellen White would give us encouragement to enter into those other lines of work, at least on a limited basis because certain people are called to different areas. You know? A soul saved from the side of the road is, is just as important in God's side as the soul saved from the, you know, the corridors of power someplace. So the Lord calls for different people to do different things. God does not endorse the efforts put forth by different ones to make the work of Dr. Kellogg as hard as possible in order to build themselves up. 
God gave the light on Hilterform, and those who rejected it rejected God. One and another who knew better said that it all came from Dr. Kellogg, and they made war upon him. This had a bad influence on the doctor. He put on the coat of irritation and retaliation. God did not want him to stand in a position of warfare, and he does not want you to stand there. Notice the source on that. This is pretty direct personal stuff. She said this in a public sermon at the General Conference, and it was reprinted in the General Conference Bulletin. You know, we have some pretty refined ideas about how, you know, nicey-nice we have to be about addressing issues these days. <laughs> you know, it's like we're all afraid somebody's going to sue us, you know. I mean, you say that about somebody today, yeah, you'll probably get sued. You know? I'm not sure that's an improvement, but anyhow. Okay, so here's the deal. This doesn't work well for Audioverse, but those of you who can watch visually, we had the ministers, we had Dr. Kellogg, and they both went off track. But the victors write the history. And so the vast majority of what you read, other than the spirit of prophecy, spirit of prophecy pretty well slices and dices right down to the core and gets it straight, okay? But if you're not reading the spirit of prophecy, you're not going to see that picture. You're going to see that picture because the victors always write the history. Okay, just get used to it. <laughs> just get used to it. Okay. Well, the Haskell home burned down in the early morning of February 9, 1909. Three children died. Unfortunately, this sad event led to a new round of accusations. Quotes, Dr. Kellogg in the local Battle Creek newspaper. The Haskell home never was owned or controlled by the Seventh-day Adventists or any other church organization. The money with which the home was built was given to me personally by Mrs. Carolyn Haskell. The leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist denomination were never much in sympathy with the Haskell home enterprise, nor for that matter with any other line of philanthropic work. Now what's interesting about this statement from Dr. Kellogg is that it's very easy to demonstrate that the first half of that is a lie. That's not what happened. It was given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It was owned and operated by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He's lying. It's not nice to lie. To me, the more important question is, what about the bottom half? I sure wish I could say he was lying there too. But I don't think he was. Well, the General Conference president felt that something needed to be said about this. So, This representation of Dr. Kellogg's is not borne out by the original records and accounting which were kept by the founders and managers of the Haskell home. In view of the wide difference between Dr. Kellogg's statements and the original records signed by himself as chairman, I consider it only fair to all parties to give the facts in this case as we find them recorded in the documents. And he went ahead and demonstrated that, yes, in fact, Kellogg was lying. Okay. In the early 1900s, there were more than 50 well-established benevolent institutions operated by the United States in, or operated by Seventh-day Adventists in the United States. Dr. Kellogg was disfellowshipped in 1907, and the Haskell home burned down in 1909. And as soon as that happened, our involvement in the benevolent work began to evaporate. By about 1915, I think there were only like five still running. To a large degree, the denomination washed its hands of the benevolent work.
Okay, I'm going to run through a string of miscellaneous spirit of prophecy quotations now dealing with this topic. You may say you have been taken in and have bestowed your means upon those unworthy of your charity, and therefore you have become discouraged in trying to help the needy. I present Jesus before you. He came to save fallen men, to bring salvation to his own nation, but they would not accept him. Though your efforts for good have been unsuccessful 99 times and you have received only insult, reproach, and hate, yet if the 100th time proves a success and one soul is saved, oh, what a victory is achieved. I'd simply like to point out from this that every investor is hoping for a good return on his investment. I don't know where you'll find that financially today. <laughs> the economy is pretty well fried, people. <laughs> Let's just admit it. But, um, but you know, if you have the chance to, you know, take your thousand dollars and put it in this bank at 0.04 percent interest, or put it in that bank at 1.4 percent interest, well, you might as well put it in the one that's giving you more interest. We want return on our investment, and the same thing when we're doing good deeds for the Lord. We want return on our investment. What this statement here tells me is I have been holding to way too high a minimum return. Follow what I'm saying? No, she's saying you get a 1% return on investment. What a victory. Jesus himself, hey, how many lepers did he heal? And how many came back? This is written to a conference president. There is enough wealth in your conference to carry forward this work successfully. And shall the prince of darkness be left in undisputed possession of our great cities because it costs something to sustain missions? Let those who would follow Christ fully come up to the work, even if it be over the heads of ministers and president. Those who in such a work as this will say, I pray thee, have me excused, should beware lest they receive their discharge for time and for eternity. Ellen White is tying together at least three extremely important things here from Adventist history. First of all, notice that she's talking about city mission work. Okay. She says, you got enough money in your conference, quit whining. <laughs> Spend some of your money. You're going to let the Satan have what was it, undisputed possession of our great cities because you want to hang on to your money? Spend it. Okay? And then she says, it's like she's thinking in her head, you know, maybe this guy won't. I'll pass on a little advice to the church members there. <laughs> let those who would fully follow Christ fully come up to the work, even if it be over the heads of ministers and president. There are only two times, two issues, I should say, there are only two issues that I can point to in all of Ellen White's writing where she encourages, I don't, I don't want to say that even, where she justifies a, what I will call a sanctified insubordination. <laughs> okay? And this is one of them. There are multiple places where we're talking about city mission work and medical missionary work in particular. She says, you know, do it over their heads. If they stand in the way, go over them. Go over them. You know? She's writing to another one. It's not in this presentation, but she's writing to an, an, another letter. She's writing to four leaders in Battle Creek. And she says, 
brother blank, brother blank, brother blank, brother blank, you know. If you refuse, it will be done without your permission anyhow. This is God's work and it must go forward. Talk about medical missionary work. The only other thing that I can find an example of that kind of insubordination, if you wish to call it that, was in 1888. The last sermon she made at the General Conference of 1888, she said, if the ministers will not receive the light, I'll take it to the people. Perhaps they will listen. She's, that's a serious issue. Now, you have to, in order to appreciate that, you have to understand how much time and effort she put into building up organization. She was not going to tear it down lightly. Light, lightly. And I don't think she was trying to tear it down either, but she was saying, I will certainly bypass it if I have to. I'm going to just make an assertion here, which I'll come back to in another talk later on. The reason for that is because righteousness by faith, which leads to the loud cry, is the same as medical missionary work. It's the same issue. Okay, let's go on. In the 58th chapter of Isaiah, the work that the people of God are to do in Christ's lines is clearly set forth. They are to break every yoke, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, bring the poor, cast out in their houses, draw out their souls to the hungry, and satisfy the afflicted soul. If they carry out the principles of the law of God and acts of mercy and love, they will represent the character of God to the world and receive the richest blessings of heaven. Now, those of you who are here for the last presentation, remember God desires to use his people to answer Satan's accusations, to make manifest to the principalities and powers in heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God. This is how we represent the character of God. Acts of mercy and love. Do it in Christ's lines. What did Jesus do? That's pretty simple. He wandered around, helped people, and he talked about God. It's not so high tech. That's what he did. Going on. Again and again, the Lord has pointed out the work which the battle, church in Battle Creek and those also in America are to do. They are to reach a much higher standard in spiritual events than they have yet reached. They are to wake out of sleep and go without the camp, working for souls that are ready to perish. The medical missionary workers are doing the long-neglected work which God gave to the church in Battle Creek. And they are giving the last call to the supper which he has prepared. We don't have time to develop that thought particularly, but that last call to supper, remember the, the Lord made the supper and he sent them out, you know, invite these people and they all made these excuses. Oh, I got married. Oh, I bought some oxen. Oh, I did this. I can't come. Okay. That's what she said to you before, but they'll be discharged for time and for eternity. Okay, that's reference from that parable. Okay. Then they're sent out again for another call to supper. And the word comes back, there's still room. And he sends them out to the, the highways and the hedges, and they finally fill the supper hall. That is, that's the loud cry. I mean, that's that terminology, that um, symbolism is how she talks about the, the loud cry. In order to be carried forward aright, the medical mission and work needs talent. It requires strong, willing hands and wise, discriminating management. But can this be while well, those in responsible places, presidents of conferences and ministers, bar the way? The Lord says to the presidents of conferences and to other influential brethren, remove the stumbling blocks that have been placed before the people. Please read the invitation to the supper and the last call to be made. Study what is being done to meet the command of Jesus. I cannot understand why such indifference is manifest. Why should stand afar off and criticize and draw away? The gospel net is to be cast into the sea, and it draws both good and bad. But because this is so, shall men and women ignore the efforts made to save those who will believe and who will unite in reaching that class whom Christ spoke of, of whom Christ spoke in his rebuke to the Pharisees? Sinners and harlots, he said, go into the kingdom of God before you. Please, oops, I'm sorry. Um, brethren, be careful, very careful, 
there is a work being done, and you'll notice I have by crossed out and to inserted. There is a work being done to the medical missionaries, which answers to the description given in Matthew 24, 48 to 51. The Lord is working to reach the most depraved. Many will know what it means to be drawn by Christ, but will not have moral courage to war against appetite and passion. But the workers must not be discouraged at this. Is it only those rescued from the lowest depths that backslide? That little change right there is a correction that I made with all due respect to my brethren. They have it wrong. This is quoting from Volume 8 of the Testimonies. If you go home and pull out your Volume 8, I'll get the reference in just a moment. If you go, go home and pull out your Volume 8 and you look at that, you'll find that it says by, and that's not the right word. The word is to. Okay? I know that because it was published twice in other, other manuscripts and things before it ever went into Volume 8. And what it's talking about here is Matthew 24, 48 to 51. Nobody ever takes time to look it up. But that's when the, that's when the wicked servant begins to beat his fellow servants. And that was being done to the medical missionaries. It was not being done by the medical missionaries. That was being done to the medical missionaries. I don't think that's a big conspiracy. I think it's a typo. <laughs> okay? There are those in the ministry. Notice what she, she just said. Is it only those from the, the low end of society that backslide? She says, there are those in the ministry who have had light and knowledge of truth who will not be overcomers. They do not restrict their appetites and passions or deny themselves to Christ. Many poor outcasts, even publicans and sinners, will grasp the hope set before them in the gospel and will go into the kingdom of heaven before the ones who have had great opportunities and great light but who have walked in darkness. In the last great day, many will say, Lord, Lord, open unto us, but the door will be shut and the knock will be in vain. We should feel deeply over these things, for they are true. We should have a high estimate of truth and of the value of souls. Time is short. And there is a great work to be done. If you feel no interest in the work that is going forward, if you will not encourage medical missionary work in the churches, it will be done without your consent. For it is the work of God and it must be done. My brethren and sisters, take your position on the Lord's side and be earnest, active, courageous co-workers with Christ, laboring with Him to seek and save the lost. It's pretty strong stuff. She's writing to conference presidents. says, if you stand in the way... Don't think you're going to stop it. This is God's work, and it must be done. The Lord signified his displeasure by permitting the principal buildings of these institutions, that's the sanitarium and the Review and Herald in Battle Creek, both burned down in 1902, permitting the principal buildings of these institutions to be destroyed by fire. Notwithstanding the plain evidence of the Lord's providence in these destructive fires, some among us have not hesitated to make light of the statement that these buildings were burned because men had been swaying things in directions which the Lord could not approve. People said, certain people said, oh, oh come on, it's probably an electrical short. It has nothing to do with the judgment from the Lord. And Ellen White was saying, it has everything to do with judgment from the Lord. <laughs> okay? The uh, fire chief of Battle Creek, John Weeks was his name, made a comment one time. He said, there's something strange about your Adventist fires. When we, when we pour the water on them, it acts like gasoline. Well, there are the two institutions, the sand at the top and the review at the bottom. This is continuing the same statement. Notice what she says. Men have been departing from right principles for the promulgation of which these institutions were established. They have failed of doing the very work that God ordained should be done to prepare people to build the old waste places and to stand in the breach as represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. That's the medical missionary chapter. 
That's what the worker, that's what the institutions of Battle Creek were established to do. And when they failed, God got rid of them. I have been instructed to refer our people to the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Read this chapter carefully and understand the kind of ministry that will bring life into the churches. When you meet suffering souls who need help, give it them. When you find those who are hungry, feed them. In doing this, you will be working in lines of Christ's ministry. The Master's holy work was a benevolent work. Let our people everywhere be encouraged to have a part in it. And then, after telling the story of the Good Samaritan, she wrote this, Here, the conditions of inheriting eternal life are plainly stated by our Savior in the most simple manner. The man who is wounded and robbed represents those who are subjects of our interest, sympathy, and charity. If we neglect the cases of the needy and the unfortunate that are brought under our notice, no matter who they may be, we have no assurance of eternal life, for we do not answer the claims that God has upon us. I fear I have some undone work in that department. That's serious stuff. And then there's this one. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God. The last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. The children of God are to manifest his glory in their own life and character. They are to reveal what the grace of God has done for them. It is our task to represent Christ. And something is telling me more and more these days that probably the best way to represent him and his work is to do the same work. And maybe even to do it pretty much in the same way. The sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child. And those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow beings provoke his righteous anger. This is the wrath of the Lamb. I am not interested in being a recipient of the wrath of the Lamb. I believe that our history teaches us that there is a solemn calling for Adventists to be far, far more humanitarian. We didn't like Kellogg because, frankly, by the time we was disfellowshipped, he'd become a real pain in the neck. He was doing a lot of bad things and really causing a lot of grief. But when we got rid of Kellogg, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. And the very worst evil comes upon the churches when the ministerial work is not combined with the medical missionary work. I think we're going to have to deal with that. But for now, let's close on that gloomy note. Um, we will uh, find cause for some greater encouragement later on in the series, but it's pretty serious right now. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that both in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy, you have left for us a record of your instruction that we can learn from. Pray that you would help us to see as you see and value as you value. We pray for wisdom and we pray for love. 
help us to know what it means. Help us to be willing to risk a little bit more of our time and maybe our means and help us to be as overjoyed with you are when we get a 1% return. We ask your wisdom. We don't want to do foolish things. We don't want to misrepresent you. But Lord, we just pray that you would teach us and help us to move always a step at a time in the right direction. That we might one day represent to the world your character and do so in our own lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.